0: Say oh hi or g'day. <laughs> That's
1: up to you, Johnny.
0: <laughs> ah, because I should I should say for the listener, uh, Dr. Lee McGowan is a Scot down under. Which bit of Scotland? You sound west coast.
1: Um, well, I'm actually from central Scotland. Um, but when I go back home now, uh, the boys tell me uh, my accent is a uh, mid-Pacific accent.
0: Oh, yeah, like uh, like Elton John singing was described as Mid-Atlantic. Or whenever we talk about accents here, I always bring up James Horncastle, the Italian football writer, whose accent is a mix of Devon and Rome. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Which is, and it just, the sounds that he makes, the only comparable one is a chap called Balin Leonard, who was born in Tennessee and has lived in London for 20 years. Balen was Danny Baker's, um, in part of Danny Baker's crew, So um, you can imagine what that sounds like. Tennessee mixed with kind of Deptford, Deptford Deptford-Bermondsey. Can I get your honorific right? Is it doctor, professor? Oh, no, doctor,
1: doctor. Uh Uh-huh.
0: I don't know why I was apprehensive, since you're in Brisbane and I'm in Watford, but the miracle of Zoom, or or the horrors of Zoom, how how much have you been on Zoom in the last 18 months?
1: Oh, same as everybody, I guess. You know, we spend... uh... The university sector here is, is, is subject to uh, changes anywhere else. And we found ourselves, um, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the COVID environment here at the moment, but of oh, on tenterhooks as they try and keep up with the, the Delta variant. So there are there is some fears in Brisbane at the moment about it's going into another lockdown. I'm not 100% sure, but definitely in New South Wales, I think things are pretty, pretty terrible. I've
0: got a friend in Melbourne. And uh, they were locked down oh. for six weeks um, and then it was opened up and then they had like three oh. cases come in from New Zealand and that was it. But So what I'm asking you, Dr. Lee, is is there any space on your sofa down in Brisbane? Because I quite fancy Australia.
1: <laughs> I don't Honestly, uh, I just spoke to a colleague who had to go to the US uh, because of a, uh, a death in the family and I think her flight back to Brisbane was in excess of $15,000. And then in addition to that, she's having to pay 3500 for a team as well. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, like, yeah, you're more than welcome to come on my couch if you're willing to mortgage your house to do so. Jointly.
0: No, I can just sell it. That's what other people are doing. Um because I've also got, we can't go into the cladding situation, but that's another hilarity. Where I am in Watford, I don't know if you've ever been.
1: Um, I've passed through Watford and I had to stop there for a meeting once when I was in London, but the closest I've really got to any kind of Watford experience was reading Dougie Brimson's work.
0: Aha, let's, yes, well done. Uh, he was going to come up, Dougie has been through the hallowed, Doorway, the threshold of the football library. Passing Roy Keane at the door, saying hello to Johnny Nicholson, whom you may know of as well. Uh, Johnny Johnny is at the front desk, currently living in Scotland. He's a Scots resident. He's, got, he's in a croft. But Dougie, who is a, a good friend of Luther Blissett's, has written a lot of uh, fic and also fic fic. And I think Dougie Brimson is a good place to start because... Uh, We're here to talk about football in fiction, among other things. Uh, We'll get to the Matildas in the second half. But uh, if you do have £120, you can keep 24 of it because I've spotted that there is a discount on the Routledge website, 20% off. Uh, So you can get the hardback of Football in Fiction for £96, which is what, £14,004 cheaper, £904 cheaper than a flight from America to Brisbane. (laughs) But look, you could uh, go to your university
1: library and order it, uh, and they'll get you a e-copy, a, a, a digital copy of it, uh, and then that's if you have to buy it for yourself as well, because I think they only print like 110 copies of these things or something, which is why they're so expensive.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, I would love to talk about the academic marketplace, but that is beyond scope of this discussion with Dr. Lee McGowan, who is down in Brisbane. Now, um... I don't know what university you're at because uh, one publication says Queensland's University of Technology. The other says it's the University of the Sunshine Coast. So which one is it?
1: Uh, Initially the former uh, and uh, currently the latter. So I was at QUT for over a decade and I have been uh, teaching and researching at the University of the Sunshine
0: Coast for the last 18, 19 months. Something like that. Hmm. Something important happened eighteen or nineteen months ago, so you're a tenured professor, but you haven't really been able to meet any colleagues or students. <laughs>
1: That's exactly right. We'd only been in the new—I'd only been in the new job maybe what, six weeks before the, the pandemic lasted. Even funnier than that, I was due to be in, of all places, Wuhan on February. Uh, the 3rd to February the 9th to watch the Matildas play Olympic qualifiers in uh, in 2020 and only the week before uh, was our trip uh, cancelled but I still have a brilliant email that we got from the tour organisers who said, look, there's a bit of a virus going round in Wuhan uh, but don't worry about it, you've got more chance of catching the flu on the plane than you have of catching it, so we're not too worried and things are going to... Plans are going ahead, you know, for to go watch these Olympic qualifiers. And so, on. I don't know if you saw, but as it turned out, they played the Olympic qualifiers in Sydney. The Matilda's qualified for the World Cup, but none of us went to Wuhan to watch any football.
0: You should print and frame that email in your office as an example <laughs> of desperate human... Um, we'll get to the Olympics. Uh, I don't want to get to the Olympics because of what happened in the quarterfinal, but we must because of your other research work. Uh, into the Matildas, and as a trail, I will say, never say die, 100-year overnight success of Australian women's football. That'll be the second half. Uh, we're in the middle of discussing Dougie Brimson. Lovely chap. Uh, zigs when others zag. I don't know if you have spoken to him.
1: Um, we, uh, when I was doing my PhD, um, what, 10 years ago, Dougie was unbelievably generous with his time. Uh, and where well, we never conversed, we... Um, exchanged a oh, oh, Scottish term, a queen of emails, Johnny. And uh, he was really fantastic with his time and and I think like he doesn't I don't think he um suffers fools and um so if, as long as you're asking him genuine questions and uh, even if he disagrees with your your perspective, he's still, uh, he's still like, yeah, I like I find found him really helpful and really generous and I and, and I was a wee bit nervous, you know, given the value of the so was level I. I. of violence in his in his <laughs> books, you know, but like, honestly,
0: I thought he was fantastic. No, it's, it's definitely the Malcolm Gladwell blink. Within two seconds, he can um, tune attuned to you. But uh, yeah, an ex-soldier, or ex-RAF, I think. Dougie in his 60s. Uh, and my campaign is to get Dougie to help Luther Blissett write his book. Luther, who remains Watford's greatest ever player. Uh, he's actually got the freedom of Watford. So if he wants to, he can drive sheep through the high street. Uh, Luther. <laughs> um,
1: that's, that's a great... That's
0: great that you can do that. Is that
1: like a bylaw of football? Yeah, awful? absolutely. Superb. Uh, Listen, there was four guys who wrote a book called Q, and they called themselves Luther Blissett, didn't
0: they? I've got it. It's in my football library, um, and it was because of Luther's one season in Milan. He had, had this notoriety, and Luther knew about it. I think he's read the book. But that's the kind of thing that I'd like Luther to write about in his book. Um, We're currently mourning the departure of Troy Deeney in town. Uh, Troy's got a book called Redemption, which is a football memoir. And I have what's called the Jamie Vardy bar. If a football memoir is better than Jamie Vardy's book, which is okay, but he's had a story to tell, um, then it goes into the library. That's That's fair. That's fair. I think you'll have some of the classics
1: in there, have you? Um, Uh, what's his name, Niall Quinns? Is it Niall Quinns? Uh, Tony Cascarino,
0: I think you mean the other guy. Tony
1: Cascarino, that's the benchmark, isn't it? Tony Cascarino's is the benchmark. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can rattle off 50 or so, Mm. but for you, what are the memoirs that need to be there apart from full time by Tony Cascarino, comma, with Paul Kimmage?
1: In terms of memoir, it's not a footballer's memoir, it's a football supporter's memoir. I think, um, Pointless, Uh, and the guy's name has slipped my mind. It's about he follows a season with East Stirlingshire and um, it's, it is an absolute gem of a book um, that's one of my favourites the, the boy McGuinness's book um, uh, <laughs> the season that he spends with Castel del Sangro is absolutely fantastic as well if for nothing else in that he's the only person in the entire story including the including the reader uh, that doesn't see the ending coming you know and so um, I think that's fantastic to see that kind of Revelation happening on the page, you know, where you were like, oh, mate, you should have seen this coming, you know. So um, that's a good one. Among the Thugs, uh, Bill Buford's book was a really good book as well. I that's thought. interesting. So,
0: just just to mention that, uh, Jeff Connor is the chap. Pointless is a Jeff brilliant Connor, book because it's, right. it's about failure. Um, but Joe McGuinness uh, and Bill Buford, both Americans. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and maybe it's because I'm an immigrant myself now. Uh, it's that outsider's perspective that brings something different to a uh, look at football. You know, in the same way that James Joyce had to leave Ireland to write about Ireland, you know, I think that uh, we see this, um, we see that we uh, outsiders have a different perspective than those who are uh, can't can't see the wood for their trees, you know, and, and sure enough, we revel in the stories that we hear about players and clubs and the stuff that's going on and that, but sometimes it does take that a perspective to, to help us look at what, we are, what we've are, carried
0: around with us most of our lives, you know. Hey, you, you said, Joyce, I will raise you Tolstoy. Uh, one of my favourite literary descriptions is of the two narratives um, which are um, the hero's journey, the quest, and a stranger comes to town. And I love the books where a stranger um embeds himself within the narrative Mike Calvin with family that's an example because it's a journalist within the world of a football team Seth Burkitt's book on being in Brazil Rowan Simon's book Bamboo Goalposts which I, I must chat to Rowan actually because I love that book it's about uh, he's a tv producer in China and uh, he tries to basically uh, do any chance of a game in China he just takes a football about and Mark, uh, Mark Watson's brother Paul um, whose book Up Pompeii, about a Micronesian island, which doesn't have football, is terrific as well. Uh, but that's all non Fiction is what we're talking about. Football in fiction, the book that you can get through your library, hopefully. And uh, via JSTOR, can we get the ebook on JSTOR?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so,
0: yes. I'm not going to go on too much about it, but there's a word, ekphrasis, which I, rec- I did Greek and Latin at university. And ekphrasis is a word I remembered, but I didn't know what it meant. And you better tell us what it means because it appears in um, very early on in your book. I uh, look, it's a Greek concept. Um,
1: if you think um, uh, uh, the best illustration of it is the ode to the Grecian urn yes. by uh, your man Keats. Uh, classically, it's where poets uh, take a, a an object, or a piece of art, generally speaking, and then they write about that. And so. The ecvarsis is that response to the thing. I once read uh, in an interview with Orhan Pamuk, who uh, is a massive football fan. I can't, I can't remember which team he supports. I want to see Galatasaray, but I'm,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm be careful. sure I'm
1: incorrect. But he, in the interview, he describes uh, his experiences as a wee boy uh, listening to the radio. He makes this realisation that, irrespective of how up to... The moment the commentators are, they are always that split second behind uh, what's actually happening on the pitch. There's always a a delay, irrespective of how good they are at their job, you know. And so, for me, like football commentary, writing about football, it's very much it it falls into that space where we're 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 always talking about the thing after the thing, and and I think that uh, one of the things that football fiction affords us is to be in the moment at, at the moment eh, and to be thinking about that at the same time, because when we're watching football, we're most often emotionally engaged in what's going on, eh, on the pitch and not really thinking about it because we're, because we're there and, and amongst it. And and I think that's the beauty of fiction, eh, despite what other people have said about it, you know, like Hornby, for example, eh, it gives us an opportunity to, to chew over that moment to, to, reflect on it to think about our own interaction in those spaces you know and um, that's one of my favorite things about it although I do love a story Johnny which is probably why I, I really like football fiction
0: which is why you did a doctorate on it uh from Hurriette Daily News sometimes I've fallen out but I've been watching Fenerbahce games since I was seven so let the record state it's Fenerbahce not Gala yeah.
1: I nearly said that as well I knew I was I was going to get it wrong but...
0: that's all right. you can redeem yourself uh, for the rest of this half, because we're talking about the, thick quote, theoretically informed field guide. I love a field guide. We should have more field guides in the football library. Football in fiction. Football is faster than words, which is why, yes, you're quite right. I love the aspect of describing the moment. We're, you've heard this phrase that a lot of continental managers use. We are in a good moment. We are in a bad moment. Um, I, I reckon they do that on purpose because football, it will never stop. Watch the football. Watch it. It's going to move. I'm sure you're familiar with the Mitchell and Webb sketch, even though you're down there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Those
1: boys are. Uh, those boys are really funny.
0: Oh, are we the baddies? Um, I might actually. If I were
1: to <laughs> I was put... Just got to see that. That's the one I love. Yeah. <laughs> when he looks at, he lo- is at. the skull. He looks at when they've got the German
0: uniforms on, and he looks at the skull and his helmet. It's like, I are mean, we the baddies? <laughs> it's a, That's universal. Um. With the football library, we've got magazines and fanzines and documentaries and fiction and non fic. Um, But I might actually have a video installation in the Andy Holt Lounge uh, dedicated to the owner of uh, the chairman of Accrington Stanley, who uh, again is an outsider, a businessman who virtually could write the book on what's wrong with football. He documents it on his Twitter feed, Andy H. Holt, which is fantastic. But a video installation with just clips of football matches and obviously when Scotland beat England in 1967, that will be on loop. Uh, But I've got to think about these things because the football library is at the moment a mind palace, but I do want it to be in Watford, the home of printing. We have the Sun Printers, which printed a lot of um, tabloid and broadsheet newspapers, which is why Watford survived Thatcherism, basically. But this library, it must have a packed football fiction section. I've got five books over there. Uh, I think they're all mentioned in your book. I had uh, advanced f- sight of several paragraphs of it. It is a literature review, uh, which always happens in a piece of academic work, and it's about 200 pages long. Um, how many novels, dear reader, do you think have been surveyed or mentioned? How many? This is The History of Football Fiction, Dr. Lee McGowan will tell us now.
1: Oh, you know, Johnny, I I think I would have read between four and six hundred novels for that uh, study over the course of about ten years when I was doing my PhD. It was a bit like a pie-eating contest. Where by the time I'd finished my PhD, I was kind of was kind of like gagging on them. Do you know, like just but um, but what I found, I think, uh, since I finished the PhD, is that the that the quality of some of the football books, fiction that we've seen, um, has improved dramatically, uh, I think. Um, uh, When I started my PhD, I was really looking for the kind of quality, absolutely beautiful football novel, you know, literary football novel, and um, by the time I'd finished my PhD, I was like, actually, you know, like, it's not even important if there's... Uh, if there's only a handful of those books there's just so much fiction that's been written about football that people have just completely forgotten about and so yeah it's possible to read even more I think i've only i'm only scratching the surface I didn't touch on things like um, self-publishing too much or um, which is ha- which is exploded in the last decade or fan fiction again something that's exploded in the last decade so so well I may have read, Oh, I don't know, maybe 400, let's say 450 books. I can't remember what the, the official figure is, I think. Um, but um, there's still, yeah, there's loads and loads more, you know. And so that, like, in order to kind of make sense of it for myself, that's what that's what the, the academic study was about, was a, was mapping the history and organising the texts into some kind of like categorisation so that
0: we could understand which ones we wanted to read and which ones we didn't want to read. Yeah, so in a way, it's uh, it's an algorithm in the flesh. Uh, the, the thing that I would never want to do is judge a literary competition, uh, unless it's short stories. <laughs> if you, like Orange Prize for Fiction or The Booker, you have to read so many novels, you get sick of the printed word. And also, I guess, you tend to say, OK, he'll die at the end. Yep, he did it, next. Or just give up. I actually gave up on a Dave Eggers book the other day, and I never give up on books. I always put them to one side, even if I don't like them, but I couldn't abide by this. Were there any football books that you felt that you had to get to the end or not give up on?
1: That's a great question. I think there are hundreds of football books that you don't have to get to the end of. There's these brilliant series that ran in in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Football libraries, they were called, and they're like 80-page novels that were pretty much aimed at um, young uh, readers and the guys who would, the working class guys who would probably, uh, if they were readers, would read a Louis Lemur cowboy book or something like that, you know, it was kind of football equivalent of those and so there's only so many times you can read a story about the star striker uh, being kidnapped just before the cup final and then making an exit. Uh, making his escape at half time and coming on in the second half and, and, and winning the cup. You know, there's that. so you don't you don't have to read all of those ones because you know exactly what's gonna happen in those. No, but but otherwise no. Um the one I've heard the most challenging for people to read when I've talked to people about it uh, was the um, David Peace's one about uh, Bill Shankly. But um, I thought it was magnificent, um red up red or bed. Um, that's one I've I've heard people say was really challenging and that that people have put aside, but I just, I thought it was hypnotic. So, so no, I haven't put any aside Um, and especially when you're reading like self-published work as well, you want to, um, you feel like um, this is, these are not professional writers, these are, these are people who are most often putting a story together based on their their personal passions and um, so I feel almost obliged to do that, but In contrast, um, unlike yourself, Johnny, if I'm reading a book and it hasn't got me by the first, like, 75 pages, I'm more than happy to put it down and start something else. Um, I think that's the the job of the writer, is to make sure that you want to read the rest of it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, It's like a a sitcom, um, introducing you to the characters and wanting to hook you. Um, We'll get to Hornby shortly, but since you mentioned David Peace... Mentioned David, David Peace, David football, football books. That's his style. Johnny, <laughs> that's fantastic. That's brilliant.
1: That's not me. I'm afraid
0: I've borrowed that of Andrew Harrison, who uh, who is a great journalist who once said, "I read it in the bath." In the bath, I read it. Reading. Um, so I've I've nicked that, but that's definitely Andrew Harrison. I have not read the Damned United. I have it. Here, a grantor, best of young British novelist, probably the best novel ever written about sport, the book that brought the legend back to life. Rick Broadbent is the the chap who likes it. Understandably, Gordon Byrne is a fan who wrote a book about Best yeah. and Edwards. Gordon Byrne? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah Gordon, but, uh, Gordon uh, uh, this stuff's fantastic. isn't it? Yeah. Um, look, I, I, I agree. I think. Well it's not it's not my favourite football book but it is absolutely magnificent. Like it's one of the rare occasions where you see the writer write and in second person has been intermixed with the with a third person narrative. You know what? I just I think he does a really brilliant job of capturing like the darkness in the human condition. It, like in the football environment. You know, like in and and his, his treatment of people like Billy Bremner and Norman Hunter, and yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, Styles. You know, I just thought, thought it was brilliant. I, I thought, I love Michael Keane uh, as an actor. I, th- I honestly think he's fantastic, and I think he did a brilliant job in the film. But he, even though the film's really good, I don't think it touches the book. The book's just something different altogether. it's brilliant. Loved it.
0: Well, the the film, I've actually, I haven't got the script, but I always say when we mention The Damned United, the script by Peter Morgan. Uh, can't remember where he is now, probably counting his money because he wrote The Crown. Um, but yeah. he, um, he adapted the book for the screen. Tim Spall is a great Peter Taylor. Michael Sheen is, yeah. is a young man, young man, is a pretty good Brian Clough. But Cloughy is a, is a character out of fiction, I suppose, which is a very banal thing to say. I, ex- I expect uh, Brian Clough is in Fever Pitch at some point, actually.
1: I can't remember can't if he is or not. Of yeah. um, I read an interview with Peter Morgan uh, when they were talking about that and, uh, and Peter Morgan and Michael Sheen has uh, both commented on, on the fact that when they were um, when they were recreating Brian Clough for, uh, for the film, because there were concerns about his portrayal, if they had taken his portrayal in the book uh, and put that on screen, that, that might have led to some challenges around how people saw him, particularly members of his family and, and stuff like that. So the, the Brian Clough we see in, on screen in the film is a, a much mo- more balanced a version of the character than the one that we see in the book.
0: Well, yes, he's. it's kind of, at that time in the early 2000s, I was too young, but um, Tony Soprano... Uh, this was before Walter White and before Don Draper. But Cluffy strikes me, and I wonder if this will be his reputation going into the next few decades, as an anti hero, because he spent those 44 days trashing his reputation and then begging Peter Taylor to come back. Uh, and then with Forrest, they, uh, they lived happily ever after, to an extent. Anti hero, Cluff. That's a
1: great story, and that's a great take on it, Johnny. Yeah.
0: Hmm. I'll, I'll work on that. Um, there's a, a fever pitch. Here is how popular it is. First published, 1992. This edition published, 1994. Second impression, 1994. In 1995, the book was reprinted three times. So I think I've got hey, the 1995 um, version.
1: Does your version have the subtitle on the front of it?
0: No. No, it's just listed as fever pitch.
1: Because I think because, because I bought it in 1992, but it had a, a, a like I was going to see a fan's life or something like that, you know. And then it changed because when it was first published, it had a um, it had a subtitle attached to it, you know. Yeah, well, So
0: American books like to have subtitles. I'm sure you've uh, you've read American books, but I read a title that it may even have been in your work, but the title just goes on and on and on. Or well, maybe I dreamt it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Fever Pitch. There's pre-Fever Pitch and post. Uh, fever Pitch made football acceptable as a literary subject. Discuss.
1: Oh, uh, let's see something we we've just been writing about in, a, in an academic paper. And we've looked at the film, the two film versions as well, and how the female character develops across a, the the love interest in the a story that's barely in the novel. A, it's centred in the first film with Colin Firth and. and um, I can't remember her name. I'm I feel terrible with that. Sarah, I can't remember. Um, and then they obviously it was transformed again by the Farley brothers into a movie in, in two thousand and four, two thousand five in, in the US. About the Red with Sox, Jimmy Fallon, and Drew, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. yeah. So and uh, like that's a, an amazing thing, you know, in that the story, fever pitch story, is they use Arsenal. In Liverpool in the, in, the, in the last game of the season was it 89? 89, 89. 90, was that the season? and when they made the film in the US they filmed it at the Boston, Boston Red Sox and they'd agreed with the Boston Red Sox before the start of their 2004 season um, that they would use the stadium to film to make the film in across the season and for the in the first time in something like 92 since years since the curse of, of the Bambino history, yep yeah yeah. So, again, it's just that, like, amazing thing that happened. You know, and I just, I love the echo of the story from Fever Pitches, that Arsenal's, eat, Arsenal's win, you know, echoing through um, 40 years of, of sport to, uh, to the ripple in the bubble burst again
0: uh, above the, the Boston Red Sox stadium, I think mean, that's a lovely thing. I love the end of Fever Pitch, the film, which is when the whole of is it islington where it's set? the whole street comes <laughs> out to celebrate and there's this big tracking shot and that is a metaphor because football in a way is about business and account sheets and asset management and workplace but that emotional stakehold makes it the ultimate story i like to say that i get all my drama comedy and farce from football rory smith once um, compared hollyoaks to the premier league and I, I almost stood up and applauded him. Do you see what he means? It's this serial yeah. drama that goes on and on, it never stops.
1: Well, that's... Um, Nick Hornby was pestered about writing more uh, football stuff um, after Fever Pitch. You can
0: imagine uh, publishers hounding him to write the next one of throw checks at him and stuff. Yeah, and, he, and, he, and he said, no, right?
1: Uh, um, he said... Um, hey, and I used this in my PhDs, really. He said look, football's got enough drama in it without us making it up, you know, and whereas I obviously disagree with them, especially now when you see the EPL becoming this kind of economic engine stroke circus. Um, Ronaldo back there, you know, planes flying banners of protest uh, over the stadium and stuff. Like, we couldn't. Imagine 20 years ago, Johnny, we couldn't write that stuff. You know, like, it's just... It's incredible. So yeah even more so now it, it has that kind of other worldliness about it but like for me the thing about football is has always been what you just talked about it's about that sense so of community it's about that what it does for us how it lifts us up and, and I think that's maybe one of the things that I've found so joyful in women's football um, because the community there yeah. is nowhere near as cynical as the as the male uh, game and um and players still play for because they love it. You know that they are great advocates of their sport, rather than being disdainful of their position in it and stuff. And so, um, I think that's uh, where, where we see really rich pockets of that uh, fan engagement and, and, and communication between clubs and fans, where it's really uh, still brilliant. You know,
0: why are fans of Arsenal men not following Arsenal women? Do yourself a favour, I... Arsenal Fan TV. Start covering that. <laughs>
1: That, well, that's the thing. Um, Look, there, there is. Um, there's always been this sense of women can't play football as well. They're not as fast. or not as strong. And, and, and yeah, that's true. That's all true, right? The women would tell you that themselves. But I think that what you see in their game is a, a proper fluidity of The game getting played, really brilliant skill levels. You know, like especially in the last in the last five years, five to ten years that. The, the 2019 Women's World Cup, there was some absolutely spectacular football getting played at it. Um, I think the one that's out here in 2023 is going to be huge as well. You know what? The, the, the quality of the football players that we are seen, now right? Ellie Carpenter, Sam Kerr, to mention a couple of the Matildas, just, they're just incredible players, you
0: know? More on them in the second half, but I just wanted to close sure, sure. The, the first half. Some of the fiction that you mention in your book, Football in Fiction, focuses on woman and in in the UK with this the scandal of fifty year the fifty year ban, which someone should absolutely write about. It means that Lily Parr becomes this saintly figure of English football. And in fact there is a novel that came out I think weeks ago, Lou Kunzler, Our Beautiful Game, which is kind of a faction retelling of that Dick Comicur ladies team. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's scope, certainly for young women who are a big market in the book trade. Um, but that's that's the next frontier. So do you hope, I think my question is, is there going to be a fever pitch for women's football or doesn't it matter that there isn't one?
1: Um, look, I think... Um, so, like, if we, fever pitch uh, marked a really, uh, an incredible moment in um, football and football writing and football culture in that um, I arrived at and amidst the enormous changes that, that had upturned the, the Premier League, um, we saw the, the first huge kind of uh, gluttonous television deal uh, happening. with B Sky B. We saw people uh, taking football writing seriously for the first time, um, rather than it being uh, rather than it being dismissed as as um, red top red-top rubbish, you know, um, but it also, like, it didn't just, like, appear. It arrived on the back of this really amazing wave of fanzine and fan engagement and, like, people doing it for themselves, you know, this kind of punk ethic that was involved in us as fans sharing our own stories eh, and engaging with each other and engaging eh, as a collective. Uh, you know and that, like, that we, we see the results of that now in, in fan ownership in clubs and stuff like that and so there may not ever be a fever pitch in a women's football because they've already in the space of the last two decades already kind of surpassed that, that um, shift from the, the, the game being wrestled from the working classes and embraced by the middle classes in, in most, of, most of northern Europe to to that, that that almost that middle class step straight away so we'll not we'll not see that change in the writing um, and the fan engagement's already there. Um, for the last uh, five years at least maybe a decade the players have been the game's best advocate on social media and, and through social media platforms they've really been promoting it so that groundswell of popularity um, has been there in a digital form so it kind of echoes the fanzine movement of the late 80s, mid to late 80s and uh, early 90s uh, but so, so it's already been there so the stories that we're telling about women footballers are stories they've been telling the fans themselves for the last um, a few years already you know? so, it's, so it's a great question Johnny and I do think that we will see brilliant uh, football writing but I don't know if we'll necessarily ever see uh, a kind of fever pitch of women's football like there, are, like there are already women's football books that are immensely popular. Alex Morgan, who's playing at Spurs, um, has got a spectacular, uh, spectacular successful series uh, um, for, for uh, young women, young girls to, to, to read. Um, and I think one of the big differences, and this is, I think, for me, one of the biggest differences between football for men and, and football for women, is um, women are much more likely to share the credit be engaged in their community and uh, be supportive of each other uh, irrespective of what's going on than, than men have been we see, uh, like just as an example of that um, Alex Morgan will always credit her ghostwriter uh, for the work that she does on the books for her where you'll never see Tim Cahill or Frank Lampard or David Beckham like, promoting the ghostwriter alongside the, 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 the stories that they tell you know like We're supposed to believe that uh, Frank Lampard has written 20 kids' books um, alongside the magnificent work he's doing as a football manager these days, you know.
0: Uh, When I spoke to Ian Ridley, just on that, Ian insisted that it was Tony Adams with Ian Ridley writing Tony's uh, pair of books, Addicted and Sober. Um, But more in the second half. Uh, In the meantime, have some oranges.